1 John 2, beginning in verse 18, John says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not, or they would have, excuse me, continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing with which you have received from him who abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, each and every one of us, whatever that means, Lord, that we might be receptive to what the Spirit of God is trying to say to us this morning through the Word of God, that we would each have an ear to hear what your Spirit's trying to say to this part of your church on this day, Lord, and as we go through this section of your Word as an act of worship, looking to you to speak things to us. So bless your Word. Give us expectant hearts and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it's often been said before that it is darkest before the dawning of a new day. And the idea, of course, in that statement that it's darkest before the dawn or it's darkest before the dawning of a new day, the implication of that is that oftentimes it becomes worse before it actually gets better. And that is true spiritually. Leading up to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, coming back to this earth, who interestingly enough, the Bible also calls him the bright and the morning star. Leading up to that time of our Lord's return, which ushers in a new day for God's children and the glorious kingdom of God, the word of God predicts for us that as an awareness and really as a caution and a warning that we would know leading up to Jesus' return that in the last days on this cursed and this sin and fallen world that times here are going to sadly get darker and darker, that the world that we live in is actually scheduled to get worse and worse morally and spiritually no matter what we do as a country politically. And we can think that by electing this person or because everyone we don't like elected that person, somehow somebody's going to fix it. Let me help you. No one's going to fix it. 
God's told us it's broken. It's a failed system. We saw last week the world is passing away. It's already in the process of deteriorating and falling apart. And this system of this world is sadly broken because of what sin has done influencing this world. And one of the ways the Bible says that this darkness will continue to strongly invade our world is through what we might call the form of spiritual deception. That is, there will be people continuously trying to deceive, operating in opposition to Jesus Christ and all of his true ways. And some will do this in aggressive, direct forms of opposition. And we see that. We see people who you can say anything else, or quite honestly, you could speak about any other per se, world religion, but when you bring up the Lord Jesus Christ, when you bring up the word of God, it's almost as if there is this antagonism and this hatred and intense animosity towards such things. And there are going to be those who with aggressive, direct efforts are going to oppose and do everything they can to discredit Christianity in the ways of Christ in an aggressive way and discredit biblical Christianity as the problem in this world. And we're going to see that more and more, where you and I, as representatives of Jesus, we're going to be the problem with the world and looked at as the problem of the world, as if somehow we're like religious terrorists that are going to destroy and defile everything that people want in culture. And then, of course, there are going to be others who just by subtly introducing deceptive spiritual ideas are going to just try and pervert what biblical Christianity really is. Those who subtle and deceptive ways as the devil is guiding their thoughts and what they're doing are going to try and defile and water down biblical Christianity and begin to produce and to offer a a perverse and polluted form, uh, which is really just something that's compromised to fit their preferences. And Jesus will just sort of be their, their mascot, their life coach, just somebody to call on in real times of trouble. And both will be happening continuously as the last days unwind, all of which really just oppose and replace what the Lord Jesus is doing and will cause great deception to many. And this is what the concern of the Apostle John's heart is in this section here. Again, this aged man somewhere in his 90s at the time of writing this letter who's walked with Jesus for decades. He's been a church leader on top of that for decades. And he offers now some instruction and warning in this next section of his letter about not being deceived spiritually. And he's giving a caution here that we might know the truth and avoid error so that we are not misguided when spiritual deception comes blowing through wherever we are at. In fact, he directly states as one of his many purposes of writing this letter, that very fact. If you glance down with me, what we read in verse 26, look what he says. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. And when we began our study in First John, we mentioned certain specific things that John said, this is part of the reason I'm writing to you. We now come to one of those things here. One of the reasons he wrote these things were those trying to deceive Christians. Now, in the last section, remember, John had just challenged Christians in verses 15 through 17 that we would not allow ourselves to have a love affair with this broken, sinful world system. 
And he cautioned us not to love this present world, not the people of the world, but the system of this world that's being directly guided, uh, you know, kind of under the radar by, by Satan himself and people living in rebellion to God and that we would not allow ourselves to become overly attached or infatuated with or caught up in this love affair with the things of this world, the systems of this world, its ideas, its viewpoints, its patterns in the ways that it does things, as well as just all of the material things that comprise this temporary failing world system, which John said at the end of our time together there, it's something that's passing away. It's already in the process of failing. It's, it's destined to be removed. Now, with that understanding of this present world system falling apart and passing away, John continues with us here in verse 18 by then saying what we have this morning. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and that should be capitalized as a personage, Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, and that should be lowercase in a different sense, have come, by which we know, he says, it is the last hour. So John wants believers, notice, to recognize this spiritual reality that the last hour has now come upon them, come upon us. And the idea here is that the time is short, that there's a little bit of time that is left on God's clock and that we should live in light of that very reality, that time is now very short. You notice he begins verse 18 by referring to believers as little children. And I think that's a very fitting term that John uses there. Again, remember, is this aged apostle, some 90 plus years old, with loving affection as a church leader, John kind of, I think, seeing himself per se, sort of like a spiritual father figure, or maybe even like a spiritual grandfather figure as well at this stage of his life. And he has this loving concern for those who are younger in the Lord, and even as no father or any grandfather in their love would ever want in any way to see their children or grandchildren kidnapped by a predator? Well, in the same way, that's how John sees this spiritually. John sees those who would deceive and mislead God's children and pull people away. It's almost as if God's heart in John's very writing here, you can sense John saying, I don't want you to let yourself get kidnapped spiritually. There are predators out there spiritually. And I don't want to see you spiritually kidnapped and taken away from the true family that you should be in. And so he views these people preying on God's precious children to deceive and to misguide like spiritual predators who would kidnap people and pull them away for their own selfish purposes and intentions. So in deep love for the welfare of God's children, he tenderly addresses them in concern. My little children, he says, I need to say some strong things, but it's because I want to guard you from those who would do you harm. I want to protect you from those whose interests are not healthy. And he informs them in verse 18. First of all, he says two times in the same verse, it is the last hour. And that he says again in the, the latter part of the verse, notice by these things going on, he says, this is how we can tell. We know for certain, he says again, that this is the last hour. Now, that's phrase there, last hour, is a biblical term that speaks of the final period 
upon the earth leading up to what we might call the day of the Lord. And the Bible uses these terms. So the last hour is indicating a final period of time leading up to what we then would call biblically is referred to as the day of the Lord, which includes things like the rapture of the church, the return of Jesus, the judgment of God during the time of the tribulation, and many of those events that will take place as the Christ-rejecting world is judged as well. And that phrase really just implies spiritually time is short. The clock is running out from God's perspective before God once again interrupts human history, which that's what this world's scheduled for. God is once again going to interrupt human history in sending his son back to this earth a second time. And in the last hour leading up to something, that's kind of when the tension builds, right? I just had a family member get married this past weekend, Friday night. And as we were driving up there, I was, I was just kind of thinking about it in my mind. And I've done you know, many wedding ceremonies myself. How Kind of as that tension of right before the wedding ceremony, right? How that tension builds. It's like the last hour right before the ceremony. That's why, honestly, I mean, not to be morbid, but I would prefer to do a memorial service over a wedding any day. Because at weddings, people are psycho. <laughs> right? They are. They, they just are. And, and, and the tension and all that, you know, the, all the build, and that's, again, that's that last hour building up to something, a big event is about to happen. Well, look, our groom, Jesus, is about to come back and pick up the bride. And, and so in the last hour, tension kind of builds. And this is kind of what happens. The tension is building on the earth before this major event. And John, notice, lived in his day in a sense that it was the last hour with the expectancy of the imminent return of jesus that is that at any moment at any given time that jesus might step back in interrupt human history and pick up his bride and john was watching for that believing in his day it was the last hour now can i say seeing the conditions of our current darkening world in this present generation and what the bible says characterizes the season before jesus returns as the last days and the last hour, how close must we be? How close must we be to this reality of time decreasing and time being short in the last hour? Notice regarding the last hour, John tells us something, verse 18 here. He says, you've heard regarding the last hour that the Antichrist is coming. Now, when John refers here to the Antichrist, He's referring to that evil person who the Bible says actually directed by the devil who will arise on the world scene and actually become a world ruler in this personage who John calls here biblically the Antichrist. Now that term there that's used anti for Antichrist, it can be interpreted in two ways. It can refer to one who is opposed or against And it also, anti, that term can be used in the sense of being in place of or instead of. So what the Bible is telling us regarding the Antichrist, that title, is one who opposes Christ, one who is against Jesus Christ. But it also can be understood one who seeks to be in the place of Christ, one who seeks to present themselves in a way where they replace 
where they basically are going to stand, you know, in the place of where Jesus Christ should be standing as a savior, as a ruler, as one who's in control, exalting and offering themselves instead of Jesus Christ. And as a part of the events of the last days during what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, it's very clear that this personage, this individual, the Antichrist, will arrive on the scene. The Bible tells us that when the church is removed at what we call the, the rapture, the catching away of the saints, when you and I are snatched off of this planet to be there present with the Lord before the judgment and wrath of God is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world, that as we are removed from this earth instantaneously and a seven-year period of tribulation begins to happen on this earth, and all of this world system then rapidly, even faster, starts falling apart here on this planet and humanity is desperate for help that a charismatic world ruler will arise to the surface out of the nations and will come on the public scene with all of his charisma offering ideas and promises to solve all the world's problems and will present ideas that could bring somehow universal peace and he will appear as this wonderful, helpful, brilliant leader that is like a savior for all of mankind and will somehow be able to usher in a one world economy, a one world religion, a one world government that will be global. And at first he will be embraced as the savior of mankind. Finally, someone has come on the scene who can't just save a country. This man can save the planet. He can save all of us. He can bring us all under one banner, one government, one religion, one economic system. This man is the savior that we have been waiting for. And all the more because the world will be unraveling and people will be longing for someone like this. And so they're very quick to receive someone as he rises to the surface but the Bible tells us that the Antichrist being directed by the devil and wanting to replace Jesus Christ to be like a savior, which Jesus Christ is, the Antichrist is just thirsty for power and thirsty for control of all of humanity. And ultimately, he will demand that all of the world worship him as God. And look at him as a savior and allow him to lord it over them in complete control. And then he will severely punish any who will not submit themselves completely. He will even deprive them of resources that he then controls if they don't submit to his lordship. So he will exalt himself to this function of being in replacement or instead of Christ as a savior and everything about him and his ways will be anti what Jesus Christ is. It will be opposed to Jesus Christ and his ways. He will be the epitome, the Bible's telling us, of a person who is against Christ. He will be the epitome of that. As a world ruler first received as a savior and allowed to fix all the world's problems and save humanity in crisis but then he will very quickly turn and show his true colors and become a cruel and abusive and domineering world dictator like this world has never seen before. And the Bible speaks in various places of what he will do. Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation 13. These are passages that describe 
what the Antichrist will do and different terms used to describe him. Second Thessalonians 2 says this of him, the coming of the lawless one. That's how he's described there. Notice, listen, the coming of the lawless one regarding the Antichrist is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception. So the Bible tells us that he will literally be operating in the power of the devil of Satan and be able with supernatural power of the devil to perform lying signs and wonders. That's called things like healings and miracles and things that look like wonders and signs. Oh, you had to see this was miraculous. Well, just because something's miraculous doesn't mean it's God. Just because something supernatural happens doesn't mean it's God. And the Bible says that one of the marks of the Antichrist is he will be operating in supernatural demonic power, performing lying signs and wonders to further solidify his deception and draw more people down a road of lies. Now, just as the Antichrist as a person will one day arise, John says in verse 18, just as you've heard this man, the Antichrist is coming. Look what he says. Even now, many antichrists, he uses then a smaller term, the idea of of personages like him in a figurative way, they have already come by which we know that the last hour is here. So the deceiving spirit of antichrist will one day manifest itself in an actual figure, a person, the antichrist in human history. But the spirit of Antichrist, which is what John says in in chapter four, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in mankind, already operating the deception of this Antichrist spirit, seeking to propose things that will be opposed to the truth of Jesus. And what the Bible is telling us is that there will be many smaller and lesser, you might say, Antichrist figures people operating in a lesser form of what the Antichrist will one day culminate in, in that same Antichrist spirit who are already bringing about deception, preparing the way, leading people away from Jesus, leading people into things that are against Christ and opposed to what biblical Christianity is offering themselves and their spiritual systems as a replacement to what the Bible tells us Christ is himself genuinely is and what biblical christianity really is and he says this will already be going on whether in aggressive ways or subtle perverse ways proposing these ideas and john tells us in verse 18 it's the presence of this that we see going on he says that is one of the things that we can tell indicates that we're in the last hour so as we see more things working in opposition to Jesus Christ, as we see more deception flowing around in different ways, he says that's one of the things that characterize. That's how we can know it's the last hour. It's one of the things that will indicate it. Now, John says, verse 19, going on, they went out from us, but they were not of us. The idea is a part of us as the family of God. For if they had been of us, he says, verse 19, they would have continued with us remained amongst us but they went out that they might be made manifest the idea is revealed or made clear that none of them were of us so notice john identifies here that some will reveal themselves 
over time as false believers, or we might say make believers, or those who are false teachers spiritually by departing from authentic biblical Christianity. And John says here, they went out from us. Now, be careful here. When he says they went out from us, he's not talking about Christians departing from one local church to choose to go worship and serve and perhaps connect to another local church. There are many reasons, some appropriate and healthy, others to me a little bit indications of immaturity, why Christians from time to time will transfer from maybe worshiping and gathering with one local congregation and will choose to move on and connect themselves to worshiping and gathering with another congregation. And there are reasons and times for many different purposes that God's people will do that. That's not what John's saying. Oh, they left our church and went to another church. I knew they were never Christians. Knew they weren't Christians. That's not what John's describing here. What John is describing here is when he says they went out from us, he's referring to the greater body of Christ, the church universal. And what John is describing here of going out from among us is a defection from the faith, an apostate, someone who's abandoning Christianity, someone who is turning away from Christ and forsaking the faith. That is, they went out from us, that is, from us as the family of God. They went out from us as the body of Christ, like what the Gnostic heresy was causing to happen in that day, as we talked about as we began first John together. The Gnostic heresy that was a part of John's day was a group of people who were claiming they had found a higher gnosis or knowledge spiritually. And so the Gnostics were coming in and saying, Look, follow us. I mean, I mean, we don't really need the Bible. We found a higher knowledge, a deeper knowledge. And if you join us, you can find this gnosis too. You can discover this deeper realm of spirituality and, and we found a higher experience in spiritual things and we can lead you to real spiritual knowledge to a much deeper level if you follow us and become a part of our system and on your own. You don't need other Christians. You don't need the, the, the body of Christ. You can have spiritual experiences much deeper than that if you participate in what we're doing. And, and so, John, I think referencing them and those who will do such things says here, those who went out from us, he says, verse 19, notice he says, they proved that they were never really of us. The very fact that they departed, he says, shows that perhaps they were never truly even saved. They were never even converted to Christ. They weren't true believers. Perhaps they were hanging out among the gathering of the church. Perhaps they were coming to meetings. Maybe they showed some interest in Christ or Christianity. But John says, but they never really knew Jesus. They never really were converted and became a part of the family of God because he says right here in verse 19, under the leading of the spirit, notice he says, for if they had been of us, that is united with us spiritually as the family of God, one of God's children, then he said they would have continued with us. They would have remained with us in the body of Christ. They would have kept walking with Jesus, stood with the family of God. But he says they went out so that their true condition could be revealed or manifest. Now, today, to me, this would be people who perhaps, let's say, appear 
for a time to show interest in Jesus Christ, to maybe even show an indication of walking with the Lord. Maybe they attend worship gatherings with Christians and hang out among the church, but then perhaps at some point later on, they then end up turning to a pseudo-Christian cult, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Christian science, these which have become pseudo-Christian cults which are anti-Christ in their theology and their distortion of who Jesus is and what biblical Christianity really is. And you know what's one of the sad and interesting things is that when you survey, and they've done studies before, many people who've become a part of Mormonism, Christian science, Jehovah's Witness, many of those people say that their roots were being among the church and biblical Christianity but then they felt gravitated and pulled and turned away and went towards those other things. And and this deception began to lead them away. They followed false teaching. You know, 1 Timothy 4 says this, that the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Boy, is that not strong language? The Bible says that there are deceiving spirits And doctrines, what are doctrines? Teachings. Doctrines of demons. The word of God says that there are certain doctrines and teachings that actually have demonic origin to deceptively lead people. And he says here in 1 Timothy 4, in the latter times, that will cause some to depart from the faith, to become apostate, to turn away and to pursue other things. Perhaps it's a reference to those who we might say just abandoned at some point walking with the Lord. And maybe we perceive they were a Christian and they were among the, you know, the church family for a time. But then all of a sudden something transpires where they just decide they no longer need the church. They no longer want to walk with Jesus. Maybe they even just turn back to worldly ways altogether. And perhaps John is thinking of them to some degree as he says they went out from us. But it just showed they really were never of us. Because they would have continued with us. They would have continued walking with Jesus and stood among the church. But he says the fact that they've departed was that they might just manifest the reality that they never really were of us spiritually. They never genuinely experienced salvation. Or worse, to me of all, that a person actually become a deceiver of others. That as someone depart from the church, depart from following Jesus and actually start to become a false teacher or a self-appointed religious leader that then is pulling other people away. And as John talks about down in verse 26, trying to deceive others and pulling other people away, whether consciously or unconsciously. Acts 20, Paul warned the church elders, the leadership, these things. He said to the church elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then he said this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock, even from among your own number, that is the church, even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Oh, you don't need that. Listen, I, I got better ideas. Or just, and, and drawing away people after themselves. And again, the Bible cautions 
to beware of these realities. Now, John, being concerned as a healthy spiritual leader and, again, a, a fatherly figure, protective over the flock, he didn't want to see this happen to those he was writing to. And that's why he says here in our next verse that despite their departure, John says, it doesn't have to happen to you. Yes, they departed, they went out. But John says, this doesn't have to happen to you because look what he says, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. So John wanted them to realize that a genuine relationship with Jesus provides to us what we need, the spirit of truth dwelling within us to help us detect error so that we're not deceived, so that we're not drawn off course. He mentions here in verse 20, he says, you've received an anointing from the Holy One. Now that term, the Holy One, is a title to refer to Jesus. We know that because in Luke 1, an angel from heaven calls Jesus the Holy One. And then in Luke chapter 4, a demon refers to Jesus as the Holy One. When you get into the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 13, multiple times Jesus is referred to as the Holy One. So when John says there in verse 20, you've received an anointing from the Holy One, he's talking about from Jesus, and he says, from Jesus, you've received, notice he calls it an anointing. Now, an anointing speaks of being blessed with oil poured upon you to be set apart for some particular special form of service or a purpose. In the Old Testament, they would anoint kings, they would anoint priests, and as they would anoint someone with oil, the idea was emblematic. You have been set apart for a special purpose. And this idea is used in the word of God in an emblematic way, oil and being anointed of a person being under the influence of the oil of the Holy Spirit, under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit, who set us apart to walk with God and to serve God as one of his children. So the idea here is basically speaking of how we've received from Jesus this spiritual anointing or unction from the Holy Spirit in order to serve God and his purposes. And in John's gospel, Jesus, when you read chapters 14, 15, and 16, he speaks about this reality continuously. In John 14 through 16, Jesus continually talks about how after his suffering and death on the cross and his resurrection and then his ascension back into heaven to the throne of God from where he originally came, that afterwards his followers would receive from him the spirit of God in a way whereby they would not only receive the spirit to be with them, but that the Holy Spirit would actually dwell within them and remain within them. And that the spirit of God would be another helper of the same kind, just like Jesus was with them while he was walking with them on the earth as the second person of the Trinity to help them in their relationship with God. For example, John 14, Jesus says this, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may remain with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. And Jesus says he will be in you who actually be within you after my departure. John 15, Jesus then says in the next chapter, but when the helper comes, whom notice I send to you, we receive him from Jesus, whom I send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, he will testify of me. 
And then in chapter 16, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the idea is back to heaven, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. So John here is just referring to what he heard Jesus talk about. He's saying the Holy One, Jesus, he has given to us as Christians his spirit, his anointing from his spirit so that his spirit might with anointed teaching within internally help us. He says, notice verse 20, to know all things. Now, he's not saying that we would be omniscient like God and know everything. The idea is that you would be able to know all things spiritually that you need to understand to discern what's true, to detect what's error, to be able to understand things about God, to be able to recognize what is from God and what's not from God, that the spirit of truth dwelling within us would be our internal guide and that he would assure us of what's true and false and help us have spiritual perception that we can know things rather than be misguided. He says, verse 21, I've written, excuse me, not written to you, because you don't know the truth, he says, but because you actually do know it and that no lie is of the truth. So John indicates here that he was writing what, remember, as John's writing this, ultimately became what? Scripture. So John says, I'm writing these things to you, which we now know is a part of the canon of Scripture. It's a part of the word of God, simply to reaffirm the truth that you already know within yourselves because the spirit of truth is dwelling within you and testifying to you what is true. And he reminds them here in verse 21, notice that truth and error cannot coexist. He says it's not possible. The two can't coexist together. No lie is of the truth. So he says truth and error cannot work together. So when we see things that we know don't line up with God's truth, and our error detector is going off within because the Holy Spirit's testifying to us, that's not of God. That's erroneous. It's not of the Spirit. That we would recognize that when the Spirit tells us that inside, that we can know what doesn't line up with God's word and doesn't line up with God's ways and we know to be true. John said, I'm just writing these things to you now to reaffirm to you what the Spirit of truth is already telling you inside of your heart within so what became god's written word as john describes here notice was confirming and aligning with what the spirit of truth had already helped them as christians to know within intuitively and look let me say this morning by way of application that is how it always works the word of truth the word of god always confirms and aligns with the spirit of truth the two always work together Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of God gave us the Word of God. So whatever the Spirit of God is doing, the Word of God is going to confirm that. And whatever the Word of God says, the Spirit of God is going to work in a way that's in alignment with that. Why? Because there will never be contradiction, and it's God's Word that helps us discern and confirm internally by God's Spirit of truth within us if something is of God or it's not of God. So whether it's something that a person is doing and they give the impression that they're doing it because the spirit of the Lord is leading them to do it. Well, the word of God and by the spirit of God, we can discern whether that's genuinely of the spirit 
or if that's perhaps maybe of their human spirit, or maybe, God forbid, worse, of a deceiving demonic spirit. And we can sense that. When we hear things spoken, we can discern. Is that of the spirit and the spirit of truth? And does it line up with the word of God and the spirit of truth within me? Or perhaps should I not recognize that as from God, but perhaps from another source? John then goes on to give an example of that. Verse 22, he says, And who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son, the idea is a Savior in Christ, he has the Father also. So John makes a very strong declaration here in verse 22 and 23, simply that one cannot separate the deity of Jesus, meaning that he is God, the deity of Jesus Christ from true relationship with God the Father. John says here in this section that if someone denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the Mashiach, the Old Testament Messiah predicted and promised, the Son of God, the Savior who would be sent into this world, and if someone denies that saying, Jesus, he was a good man, or he was a great teacher, or he was a prophet of God, or he was a miracle worker, all of which he was. But they stopped there, or they denied that Jesus was God. Not he was created by God, not he's a, 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 an angelic brother to Michael, but that Jesus is God. If they deny that reality and discount the deity of Jesus, then they are denying what Jesus said of himself, that he was God. And what the father himself said of Jesus, this is my beloved son, the son of God. And he says, when such a person does that, John says here in our writing in verse 22, that person is a liar. They've made themselves to be a liar. Why? Because they are basically calling God a liar. <laughs> They're saying Jesus lied when he said he was God. And the father in heaven lied saying that was his son. And they're basically saying they are right and God is wrong and to deny Jesus as revealed in the word of God, he says here, is to deny the father and the son. That is to have no true relationship with either. That's why he says in verse 23, whoever denies the son in who he truly is doesn't have the father. But if you acknowledge the son, that's how you know you have a relationship with the father as well. Again, you cannot separate the two. You can't separate the deity of Jesus, the biblical Jesus, and have true relationship with God. But to believe upon Jesus correctly as who he was, God, who came to be savior for mankind, he says, is to assure that you have a true relationship with God. In fact, John uses strong language to identify those who are deceivers and denying such. I mean, look what he says there in verse 23, or excuse me, the end of verse 22. He says, he is antichrist who denies the father and the son. That's strong language. John says, if you're denying this truth, Jesus, he says, you're a, you're a little antichrist. That's what you're functioning and living as from God's perspective. And look, let me just say this morning, people may say, right? You've talked to others. I have as well. People may say things like, I, look, I don't need Jesus, but I know God. I'm a spiritual person. To which God, according to the scripture, which he wrote, God would say to such a person, you may be spiritual, yes, but you are spiritually deceived and you're lying to yourself. God may say to such a person, 
I know that you say you don't need Jesus Christ, but God would say you're actually behaving like an antichrist because you are denying the very truth that saves a person's soul, including your own. Strong language. But again, because God loves us, God speaks to us directly and honestly. John therefore says in verse 24, therefore let that abide in you, remain in you, the idea is, which you've heard from the beginning. Now, what was it that they heard from the beginning at the start of their spiritual life? The gospel of salvation through Jesus, the word of God in its purity and sincerity. So John is simply saying, listen, I'm encouraging you, let that remain in you, which you've heard and had from the beginning. Let it stay with you. Let the truth of the gospel message and the word of God, which saved your soul and powerfully changed your life, let it remain with you. Stay anchored in that. May that truth be what you stay anchored in so that you're not blown off course spiritually. And look, folks, it is a conscious choice. It is of spiritual responsibility for every one of us as Christians, as God's children, to do what we can to not let new or different ideas that come blowing through like currents of wind that may seem culturally relevant or more exciting somehow replace biblical truth of the authentic Christian faith that we have had from the very beginning and that we were grounded in. Maintaining sound doctrine is important to spiritual health, especially in these latter days. Again, I encourage you, read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, and there's a constant emphasis Paul gives to Timothy there saying, look, in the, in the last days, people aren't going to endure sound doctrine anymore. They're going to look for people who will scratch the itch to say things that they just like to hear. They won't want to be really edified spiritually or have things explained to them of spiritual truth. They'll just want someone to scratch the itch. Can you entertain me for a little bit so I can check off my religious box and go back to my life? Or, or can you say things that make me feel good about myself rather than telling me what I really need to hear for myself and my soul's condition. And Paul in chapter three, speaking about the inspiration of the word of God, even told Timothy, he said, Timothy, in the last days, imposters will get worse and worse. But you, having known the holy scriptures from infancy, continue in the word. Stay in the word of God. Let that be your anchor. And look, that's not just so we can be theologically correct. Look what he says the rest of verse 24. He says, the reason is this, if you, what you've heard from the beginning abides or remains in you also, he says, you will abide in the son and in the father. So what Paul's saying here, excuse me, what John's saying here is allowing God's word to remain at work inside of us and always be the governing authority over our life as God's people. That is the very thing that will keep us safe to stay in healthy relationship with God. And that as we let God's word remain in us, it's what enables us to have a healthy relationship with God because that's what spiritual life is all about. It's not about religious routines or religious rituals or whatever else we may make it out to be, a spiritual social club. It's about a relationship with God. It's about a personal relationship of walking with Jesus. And that's why we have to let the word of God abide and remain in us because it keeps us abiding and remaining in relationship with God as we're supposed to. 
Look, let me encourage you this morning with this reality. It is by the spirit of God through the word of God that we will always hear the voice of God. Let me say that again. It is by the spirit of God through the word of God that we will always most clearly hear the voice of God to know what God is speaking to us, what is true and what is false. And when God is speaking to us from his word, we'll know what matters most because look what John says in verse 25. And this is the promise that he's promised us what eternal life. John says, this is what God's promised. God's promised many wonderful things in his word to help us in our journey on this earth. And, but there's no promise that's more important than what? Eternal life, that the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, the Bible tells us that God does not promise life on earth is always going to be easy. Nowhere does the word of God indicate that we'll experience paradise on this earth or that if we accept Jesus Christ, that everything gets better. The Bible indicates this broken world full of sin and sickness and suffering is going to be difficult and we're going to journey through struggles. But what God has promised to us is eternal life. What God has promised to us is the opportunity to have our sins forgiven and our guilt removed and to know that one day we are going home to the Father's house. And this life will seem like a blink and a vapor. And for all of eternity, we'll get to experience forever and ever the paradise of God. Eternal life. Revelation 21 says it this way, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. That will cease forever, losing loved ones. Nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new, right? For these things are true and faithful. Again, that's what matters most. The gospel of salvation and the word of God put our focus always not on present worldly life, but heaven, eternal life. Here's God's promise. Not that life might always be easy but that in the end, eternity's sure, and it's real. And that's what's going to matter most to all of us in the bigger picture beyond this life on earth. John says again, these things I've written to you, why? Concerning those who try to deceive you. There has always been, and there will always be the existence, right? As we've talked about, those who try and deceive the people of God. Second Peter writes a whole chapter about that very thing of false prophets and false teachers that will always be trying to deceive and so we have to be on guard about that and then john concludes coming back to this same idea again verse 27 but the anointing which you've received from him from jesus abides or remains in you and you don't need that anyone teach you but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie just as has taught you you will abide in him so John comes back to the same idea of the anointing, again, referring to the spirit dwelling within us. One translation renders this verse this way. You've received the Holy Spirit. He lives within you and you don't need that anyone teach you what is true for the spirit teaches you everything you need to know. 
and what he teaches you is true and not a lie. So just as he's taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. So John's saying, look, we've received the spirit from Jesus. And what John's point is in verse 27 is so that no Christian has to remain completely reliant upon another human being to help them understand spiritual truth. He says the spirit can teach you all things. Now, listen, that does not mean that we don't need spiritual teachers or mentors or instructors in our life. Right. That would contradict what John's doing. What's he doing in this letter? He's providing spiritual instruction. So John's not saying that you don't need teachers, you don't need mentors, you don't need instructors. Ephesians 4 says that God gives to the church spirit-gifted individuals to be pastors and teachers, to equip the saints, to help them mature spiritually, to understand the ways of God. But what John is trying to drive home is that God has given each Christian the most helpful teacher right within themselves. And it's the spirit of truth. John 14, Jesus said it this way. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. So dwelling within every one of us as a Christian is the Holy Spirit who becomes our internal teacher to teach us to understand the ways of God. He helps us understand what the word of God says as we read it. He instructs us what's right and wrong spiritually, teaches us God's will, educates us what's of God, what's not of God, helping us to understand that. And let me just say, folks, whenever it be myself or anyone teaching the word of God, all that should really be happening is, is if someone is teaching the word of God and you're hearing the word of God taught, the spirit of God should just many times just be confirming what he's already telling you personally anyway in your own heart and life. Whereas you're reading the word of God and the Holy Spirit speaking to you personally, and then you hear a teaching on the radio or from a pulpit, and, and you just hear reinforce the same thing. And it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is just fastening in with nails truths that he's already talking to you about, things he's already teaching you in your life. And what is the most important thing the Spirit wants to teach every Christian? Well, John says it in the end of verse 27, as he has taught you, you will abide in him. The Spirit will teach you the same thing that Jesus taught. And what did Jesus say? Abide in me. That is what the Holy Spirit wants to teach all of us more than anything else. When his ministry is at work, it will be bringing people closer to Jesus. It will be helping people stay connected to Jesus. And the Spirit will guide us into keeping spiritual life simple. Christ-focused, walking with Jesus, remaining connected, let me caution you this morning in our current generation. Be careful. Don't allow yourself to get preoccupied and pulled off course chasing spiritual phenomena and, 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 and what sometimes becomes spiritual production rather than just spiritual worship among the people of God. Just stay with Jesus. Love Jesus. Live for Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And one day... We'll be with Jesus, right? Amen. That's what we want. Let's stand together and let's.